This sermon was recorded at the Johnson County Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Good morning. The scripture for today is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and can be found on page 981 in your Pew Bible. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain." Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Good morning, everybody. My name is Mark, and I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new or if you haven't been with us before, I just want to say welcome, and we're glad that you're here. It's good to see everybody. And it's a, it's a good time uh, to join us as a church because we're, we're walking through five weeks in the uh, mission statement on our wall, mainly as an effort to pick out um, sections of it that are universal for all Christians everywhere all the time, things that just won't change whether or not our mission statement changes, to tell you the truth. Our, our mission statement is that we exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. That's our mission statement, but you don't have to have that vocabulary, the vocabulary of our mission statement to have the same values and the same burdens as our church. The truth is, is that Christians maintain certain non-negotiables. Much blood has been shed and, and that's been shed to establish and maintain and share and protect the doctrines of the church. Much of these fundamental doctrines are under assault just in our world, and we want to be like Jude from the New Testament. We want to be the kind of people who will, with character and endurance and humility and conviction, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We know at this church here that we were created. We're not gods. God is God, and out of his infinite good pleasure, he created us. Also, we know at the church that we are, we are sinners. We have abiding inner corruption that assaults us and works against us and against our prospering and flourishing. That sin separated us from God and only by faith in his perfect sacrifice, in the perfect sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, can we be reconciled back to God. Only by grace, through faith, 
Can we receive the forgiveness and adoption as sons and daughters of the living God? This work of God on our behalf is then arranged and enlisted into the cultural mandate that we would be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and have dominion over it by working really, really, really hard at cultivation, by putting our hands to the plow and offering our minds and our bodies back to God and say, we only want to live lives that glorify God, that magnify God, that always, always, always point back to the living God. Our lives are not about ourselves. Our lives are actually about God. And we don't do this alone. Let me be clear. The whole, the whole counsel of God does not know a solitary Christian. You can't be a body by yourself. You might be a hand, or you might be a foot, or you might be an eyeball, but you're not a body without everybody else here. And Christians are the body of Christ. We need each other to make that happen. We are called the bride of Christ. And I said this last week, but it bears repeating. We don't get Jesus without his bride. Jesus doesn't go anywhere without his bride. If you love Jesus, you have to love the church too, because Jesus does. And let me just take a second to mention, because there's lots of kind of bad talk about the church right now. So let me remind us of something really, really obvious. Jesus loves the church. He loves this church. As we walk through dark or difficult times, the antidote to our hurt or discontent will not come from blaming the church. The church is a mess because people are in it and people are a mess. But Jesus loves his bride deeply, more deeply than we can understand. The truth is that we need each other. We need communities. You need to share in the Holy Spirit with other believers. You need to partake in the Spirit of God with other believers. You need to participate in the very life of God with other believers. That is mutual sharing and mutual indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that is what the Bible means when it talks about Christians in fellowship in koinonia kind of fellowship with one another. Christ is the essence and the substance and the practice of Christian community. And this week, we're going to think about what kinds of people this fellowship consists of. What kind of people are the body of Christ? We exist to cultivate communities of transformed disciples, and that's not unique to this church. You don't have to be a Christian to use our mission statement, but you do have to be a Christian if you want true spiritual transformation. And you do have to be a Christian if you want to be a disciple of Jesus. But what do we mean when we say transformation? And what do we mean when we say disciple? And the answer to both of these questions is what I want to cover this morning. And then I want to bring it all together within the verses of our text. Our text will actually function kind of like application or conclusion to the definitions of what it means to be a transformed disciple. For the rest of our time, I want to define what we mean by transformation and why it's essential to being a Christian. I want to define what we mean by disciple and why it's essential to being a Christian. And I want to demonstrate how they relate to one another. What do we mean by transformation and why does that matter? 
What do we mean by a disciple and why does that matter and how do they work together? So I'm going to pray real quick and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, would you convict us? Would we believe, would we believe at the bottom of who we are that you did not bring us here because we didn't have anything better to do on a Sunday morning? Would we believe with everything in us that you brought us here specifically because you planned to do something? You have work to do in us through your word. You have plans. You have work that involves us noticing places where we aren't following you. Noticing places where we're not obeying you. You have work to do in our lives that involves us coming to grips with places that we are conformed to the world instead of being conformed to Christ. Would we, would we be okay with that reality? Would we welcome that? Would we believe that you have that kind of work today? Would you do that in us, Holy Spirit, I pray, in the name of Jesus? Amen. First, why do we use the word transformation? And where do we see it in the Bible? What's essentially Christian about the way we use this word? We all need to be on the same page about how we use words as a, as a family. And the Bible speaks in many places about change and how about, about how God changes people. And today I'm going to define transformation. I'm going to try to define transformation the way the Bible does. Okay? How do Christians change? What are we changing into? Why does that matter Transformation in the Bible is inseparable from the concept of sanctification and the concept of obedience. But first, let me read a couple passages about being transformed. Romans 12.2, a familiar verse for anyone who, who grew up in the church, says, do not, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. This means to transfigure or transform. The word for transformation in this text is where we get our English word metamorphosis. It's that kind of fundamental wholesale transformation that happens in the Christian's life. It's where we get the word metamorphosis. Don't be conformed. Don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transfigured, be transformed through the renewing of your mind. And then again, we see the word for transformation in 2 Corinthians 3.18 when Paul says, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. So here we see degrees of transformation. There's a progression. There's a sequence to the ongoing unveiling transformation in the Christian life. It's ongoing. It's unending. Same with Romans 12. You don't, you don't need to be renewed in your mind at one specific point in your life and that's it. You need to continually attend to what you're thinking and how you're believing is what you believe an example of conformity to the world or does it bear the marks or the fruit or the outworking of true transformation being aligned with the word of God? 
In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for transformation is used in places like Amos and the Psalms. And in these examples, it actually isn't people that are being transformed, but it's the very natural order of things that's being transformed. In Amos, we see day becoming night and night becoming day. In Psalm 114, a rock is transformed into a spring of water. God's able to completely rearrange reality. And for the Christian, these metaphors, these examples are what he does for our thinking and what he does for our affections and what he does for our wills. Christians, in a very real way, are undergoing a metamorphosis. People start to argue about their understanding of sanctification at this point. Are we completely perfect at this point? No. But you see in Romans 12, you see in Romans 12, a chapter that is full of practical implications of the powerful work of God that's happening deep inside of us. Implications for how we should live. Romans 12 gives you instructions for what to do. It gives you instructions for how you're supposed to think. It says things like, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. Or, never be wise in your own eyes. And, let love be genuine. And those kinds of realities, those kinds of instructions are super hard to test. Right? They're super hard to look, look at in a concrete way. You, all, you can't see what's going on inside my mind. You don't know if I'm being genuine. You don't know if I'm being truly sincere. That's why in a Christian's life, attention to your mental kind of dynamics and your mental frameworks and movements must be rigorous and ruthless. Second Corinthians goes on to give practical instructions related to how your behaviors align with what it means to be transformed. It speaks of not practicing underhanded ways, not deceiving. Concepts like biblical sincerity and biblical genuineness are difficult to get our hands around, but this is why we must be transformed all the way to the bottom of who we are. And that's good news for the Christian. When you repent and believe, you're reborn. In a real way, you are made new in that moment. You're transformed in the sense that you're made something brand new on the deepest parts of the inside of who you are. And, and, and you are constantly transforming more and more and more and more. Those two realities happen simultaneously, concurrently. The Bible says that we're made into something brand new that's completely different than what we were And that happens in an instant through faith. But what we will be isn't completely finished yet. What we will be is still being unveiled. There's a real irreversible change accomplished when you believe the gospel by God through election and the power of the Holy Spirit. There is a new birth. There is what's known as regeneration, We were dead and now we are alive. And yet there's ongoing change to demonstrate or uncover. Real change happens from the inside out, but it never only happens on the inside. Real transformation happens from the inside out. And if there's no transformation on the outside, that's a problem. 
That's something to consider. That's something we should pay attention to. This is where I want to turn to the concept of sanctification and obedience, the places in the scripture that have those two realities right next to each other. You do not, I'll be clear, you do not become a Christian merely by checking off a box and doing everything it says in the Ten Commandments. You do not become a Christian by merely obeying. That must be crystal clear. There's nothing you can do. You will never be smart enough or funny enough or nice enough You will never achieve enough or be moral enough to make yourself a Christian. No amount of good works and no amount of good behavior will cause God to save you. Only, only, only when you give up on your own self-righteous efforts to make yourself good enough, only by stopping this kind of transactional interaction with God where you believe that you deserve salvation, only by stopping dead in your tracks and repenting for your sin and turning to Jesus as your Savior from sin and darkness and death and embracing him as your Lord and Savior, can you receive salvation? Can you receive transformation? Can you receive regeneration? Only through Jesus can you be made new. Your framework for what life's about won't cut it. Your paradigm for being a decent person won't cut it. And it really, if you're honest, isn't even good enough for you. It isn't satisfying the longings of your soul. Your made-up assessment for how you're doing won't cut it. Not because you need to improve it, not because it just needs to be tweaked, but because it doesn't work that way. God's offering a free, better way, a true way. The Bible says today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, soften your heart, repent, believe, look to Christ. That's a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't muster it up. You can't twist God's arm through faith. It's a gift by the power of the Holy Spirit. And out of that comes this willing and humble, submitted heart that can obey the words of God through faith. This is how Christians keep killing their old self and embracing the new one. The New Testament talks about it like taking off a cloak or taking off garments. Put off all the old junk and put on the new ways of behaving, the new ways of loving, the new ways of living. The New Testament talks about it like we are to, um, we are to use all of our faculties and make our bodies our slaves and put them in line with the word of God by faith and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Many of us find ourselves in our lives that we're still behaving in old worldly patterns. Or maybe you're in this room and even in this moment, you're noticing places that you've given in to being conformed by the world. And I want us to ask, how do we put that to the test? How do we put our actions and the kind of inner dynamics in our heart and soul, how do we put that to the test and find out if it's conformed to the world as opposed to being conformed to Christ? We can put that to the test by examining our obedience and setting it up against the scripture. Transformation in a way is an instantaneous being brought from death to life. It's a new birth. It's regeneration. And it's the progressive sanctification of a life lived in obedience to God through his word. The sequence in the New Testament goes like this. The good news is that you're a sinner and you don't have to pretend like you're not. 
You can own that, embrace it, and see it. You're a sinner. Repent. Believe for the forgiveness of your sins. You're a new creation once that happens. The old is gone. The new has come. And now walk in the new way of the new man and keep killing the old way of the old man. And you do that through conformity to God's word. Look at how obedience and sanctification are intertwined. If you have your Bibles, you could turn to Romans 6, starting in verse 17. It's on page 943 in the Bibles in your pews. Romans 6, starting in verse 17, page 943. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart, obedient from the heart, obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Obedient from the heart, presenting your members as instruments of righteousness leading to sanctification. And love has everything to do with this. We see Jesus saying it over and over and over again in the Gospel of John that if you love him, you'll keep his commandments. If you love him, you'll obey him. Love is spelled out in a few different ways in the Bible. But here in Jesus' words, love does something. It does something. Love is seen as lawful, obedient behavior from the heart. You see, you see the Pharisees, the Pharisees that Jesus Jesus critiques in the New Testament could actually do what the law says better than you can and better than I can, but they weren't doing it from the heart through faith. The problem wasn't with what they were doing. The problem was with their heart. The problem wasn't that that they were obeying the law. Paul says later in Romans that the law is a good thing. The problem wasn't that they were obeying. The problem was that their obedience wasn't from faith. So if you add up the formula in Romans 6, obedient, righteous behavior from the heart is the fruit of sanctification. Obedience from the heart is the outworking of sanctification. And that's the kind of transformation that just doesn't stop in the Christian's life. It just gets deeper and deeper and deeper and layer after layer after layer. And as I was studying this, I, 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 wanted to, um, I wanted to unveil or just kind of expose a bit of a warning as well. Because when, when you preach on obedience, there will be an objection. There'll be an objection, and I want to address that objection. The objection will come that I'm not preaching the gospel of grace, or that I'm preaching law, or that I'm preaching legalism, or that I'm preaching in a way that will make people moralists instead of understanding what it means to be a Christian. So let me say really clearly, I don't want that. 
I'm not doing that. That is not what I want. I don't want the church to be full of some sort of religious people who don't love Jesus but have a certain way of life or a certain cultural way of acting that they want everyone to um, align with. I don't want that, and that's not what I'm saying right now. Let me explain why. If you're in this room and you love Jesus and you're striving to kill your sin and see the fruit of obedience in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit, that's a good and gracious gift from God. He's the one willing and working in that moment. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for our whole church. If you find in your discipline and your diligence that you're becoming haughty or prideful or self-righteous or perhaps conceited or legalistic, then what do you, what do you think you should do about that? It's a real question, real time. What should you do if in your life you started to believe that you can earn something from God or force his hand, that he owes you something because you live in a righteous and obedient way on paper? What you should do in that moment is what you've done in the past. You should repent. Repent for the arrogance. Repent for the legalism. Repent for the pride. But you don't stop obeying. In fact, if what looks like obedience is being acted out because of pride or sinful motives, it actually lacks the kind of obedience that Jesus is talking about. But don't quit trying. Don't quit putting your way um, against his way and attempting to do what he says. Just repent of your pride and receive all of his grace and forgiveness again. And then keep after it. Just don't hope in it. Don't, don't think it forces God to give you anything. We can't fix legalism with license. Legalism and license are addressed the exact same way in the scriptures with repentance and faith. And I know that from experience. I know in my, in my life there was a moment where the where versions of hypocrisy or pharisaical living um, I don't even know if they were really pharisaical or really hypocritical. I just know that at a point in my life, judgment swelled up in my heart and I saw things in the church that way that caused me to react to it and kind of turn my back on things and to not keep obeying or keep believing or staying connected to the body. And all that brings is more pain, more destruction, more misery. Don't do it. Don't do it. If you find yourself doing it just to do it or to be prideful or to feel good about yourself or to, to experience the kind of like uh, sinister pleasures of conceit, just take that opportunity to get on your knees. Ask, ask God to forgive you and repent. I do want to say one more thing about the idea of like obedient, faithful pursuit of the way of Jesus as as an expression or outworking of sanctification and transformation. And I want to say it kind of like a, a, as like a parenthetical statement to the rest of what I'm saying. The last kind of parenthetical thought um, comes from a place like Hebrews 6 that tells us solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by, by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And this is where a mature Christian should have their antenna up 
and be watching and discerning because different eras of the church deal with different sins and different temptations being uh, lobbed at the church. And right now, in our era of the church in 21st century America, I don't get the impression when I look at the evangelical landscape that we're in grave danger of becoming overly legalistic. I don't think... I don't think that the danger in the church today is that we talk about obedience to Jesus way too much and everyone's going to think that we're preaching a gospel of works. Now, I could be wrong. Totally open to that. I enjoy being wrong. But I don't believe that's the kind of sinister temptation assaulting the church today. I see much more conforming to the world than I see people worried about a gospel of works. I see way more conforming to patterns in the world with regard to parenting or sexuality or with with regard to education, with regard to mental understanding, a kind of mental paradigm and framework and understanding about human beings and about what's good for them or what's bad for them, about what makes them flourish. I see way more kind of worldly theories and paradigms seeping in in those ways. I just don't see American evangelicalism on the verge of embracing pharisaical or overly puritanical kind of ethos or culture. I don't think that's the danger in front of us. And if anything, I believe our danger is the opposite that we've devalued and de-emphasized a really key relationship in the scripture, a relationship of love and obedience. And that's, that's what I think I kind of observe. End of parentheses. And with that said, I want to talk about what we say when we talk about discipleship here at the church or what we talk about what it means to be a disciple at the church. This is going to be a little bit quicker than where I was because when I talked about, when I studied transformation and was thinking about how we're transformed as human beings, um, that just really gripped me a lot more in my preparation. But, but if you put it simply, a disciple is a follower or a learner. A follower or a learner. John Piper says, it, says this about what it means to be a disciple. He says, I think what's important is not the terminology, but the reality People need to become Christians and people need to be taught how to think and how to feel and how to act that is distinctively Christian. That's a disciple, a follower of Jesus, one who embraces Jesus as Lord and Savior and treasure. Christians are disciples of Jesus. And when we talk about being a disciple, we mean someone who lives their life in continual, ongoing transformation into Christ-likeness. One of the godly men in our church, you might know him, and if you know him, you probably know this about him, but he prefers the word apprentice to disciple. Because in our day, disciple has become kind of ambiguous, at best, and really underused or misused or overused, I'm sorry, at worst. An apprentice, an apprentice is somebody who's watching and paying attention and learning and learning and learning and changing and not just changing, but adjusting. 
An apprentice is paying deep and close attention and growing in their ability to pay deep and close attention. They may learn to accomplish a task, but they're learning to do it over and over and over and over, getting a little bit better every single time. They learn to see things, see things that were always right in front of their face, but they couldn't see it, but the master could see it. They're learning what it takes to discern that and be able to see it. They're growing into becoming more and more and more like their master, to see how he sees, to know what he knows, to love what he loves, to live how he lives. Discipleship as a word isn't even in the Bible. But that shouldn't freak us out because neither is the word Trinity. So that's okay. And the word disciple isn't any place besides the Gospels and the book of Acts. But what is in the New Testament letters a lot and the pastoral epistles is a concept of imitation. A concept of imitation. 1 Corinthians 4.16 says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's why I sent to you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ. I sent this guy to remind you how I behave, how I act, what I do in Christ so that you could imitate it. 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. And then finally, in 3 John 11, John says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And at this moment, I could hear somebody object and say, well, if I'm just imitating good, aren't I putting on a mask or acting like a Pharisee or acting like a hypocrite? And my answer to that is like, sort of, maybe. The instructions are clear. There's something good about seeing the way somebody else lives their, lives their life um, in, in, in the wake of Jesus Christ in trying to do what they're doing, to make an honest effort at that. It's a good practice. It's a good way to see how to obey and how to grow in obedience. Being a disciple of Jesus means growing in our knowledge, growing in our understanding, growing in our maturity, growing in our holiness. Being a disciple of Jesus means we walk in the way of Jesus and not merely display the marks of a religious culture. Listen to these words from author and pastor Eugene Peterson in his book, The Jesus Way. So, Jesus, the way, the ways of Jesus. He shows the way, and he also is the way. He doesn't point out the way and step aside and let us get there on our own as best we can. Jesus points out the way, but then he takes the initiative, inviting us to go with him, taking us with him across land and sea through all kinds of weather, avoiding dead ends and seductive byways, watching out for danger and alerting us to enemies. The way is not an abstraction the way of Jesus is not a slogan. The way of Jesus is not merely a, excuse me, is not merely a principle. It's a metaphor. It's a road. It's a path. It's a street. It's a highway. It's a trail. And simultaneously, it's a person, a body that we can see and a spirit that we cannot see, speaking words that we can understand, sitting down to dinner with friends, teaching in a synagogue and on the shores of Galilee Lake 
sailing in a boat and riding on a donkey, throwing a picnic featuring bread and fish for 5,000 men, women, men and women with their kids, spending the night praying for you and me in the mountains and dying on the cross and rising again from the dead and breathing his resurrection life into us. Mapping our very heart and behavior, our very emotional world, our very values onto the life of Christ is discipleship. It happens incrementally. It takes the focus of a soldier, it takes the discipline of an athlete, and it takes the diligence of a farmer. And once, it's one simple, profound step after another simple, profound, unimpressive step into the very life of Jesus. That's one degree of glory to the next degree of glory, to the next degree of glory, to the next degree of glory, beholding him, and we become like what we behold. Today, what small clicks on the dial of glory does God intend for you? Where is there hardness of heart that must be softened? Where are there postures in your emotional life or mental life that are not like Jesus? Are there places that you're holding on to bitterness or anger or resentment? The invitation this morning is to repent and and let go of it. To repent and let go of it and turn again and trust him, trust Jesus As we aim as a people to imitate Christ, I do want to give also a kind of word of instructions that you you don't imitate, you you don't need to imitate everything about your leaders. You don't need to imitate everything about your leaders. Your leaders are sinners and they are deeply flawed individuals. But any place you see someone imitating Jesus, imitate that. Any place you see somebody living a life with the aroma of Christ, pay attention and apply it to your own life. And that brings me to our kind of like final exhortation this morning that is in our text that was read at the beginning of of my time. So I'm going to read from Philippians 2 one more time. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. So let me look at you guys. Let me look at my friends. Let me, let me even uh, spend a moment in self-reflection and exhort us, exhort us as you have obeyed, keep obeying. As you have obeyed, don't quit. Don't settle. Don't grow cold. Don't grow complacent. Don't forget. Don't fall away. Don't be conformed to the patterns of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Obey Christ by working out your salvation with fear and trembling, not because you're alone, 
Not because God leaves it up to us to prove ourselves to him. Not because you're self-righteous or legalistic, but because it's God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Let me slow down and be super clear. It pleases Brothers and sisters, it pleases the living God to give you the grace that you need to obey him. You don't have to negotiate like my four-year-old. You don't have to twist his arm. He likes to do it. It pleases God to give you the will that you need to obey. It pleases God to will in all of his infinite good pleasure in you obedient works that he empowers at the same time to work in you obedience, to work in you the work of you working out your own salvation. That, that makes him smile. It becomes really obvious really quickly as you look at the dynamics of being a transformed disciple, God doesn't leave any glory on the table for anybody else. Every act of our obedience is for his glory. So let me give you this exhortation. Do it a lot. Do it all the time. Because it glorifies God. It glorifies God. The God of the universe gives you what you need. And he enjoys every second of it. How much more encouragement is offered to us than in that divine reality. Your work is empowered by God, and as he empowers you, it fills him with joy. God's not stingy. He's not a miser. He's after your transformation, and it lights up his eyes to do it. He loves you. He loves you. How does that rearrange the challenges that are in your life? Giving grace to needy people like you and me is what he delights to do. And my friends, it's not like he, he delights to do it once or twice. He delights to do it all the time. That's why the scripture says things like his mercies are new every single morning. Every single morning, he delights to do it all the time. It's like his posture towards you, facing you at all times. So we don't have to grumble. We don't have to grumble. We can be lights instead so that when we stand next to the worldliness of the world, there's a massive and clear distinction. Be like light in the midst of darkness. Be straight amongst crooked lines. Be pure amongst the perverted. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Be blameless and innocent. Love good. Abhor what's evil. Don't murmur. Don't grumble. Don't complain. Purify your hearts and do what Paul says. And, and, and even, even, even as Paul says, God's grace towards me wasn't in vain. I worked harder than anybody, but, his, but it wasn't me. It was God's grace that worked in me, and his grace wasn't in vain. It wasn't in vain. I worked harder than anyone but it was the grace of God at work in me. So do you love Jesus? Then listen to what he says. It's for your good. It's an expression of his love. Not to get him to love you, but to magnify his glory in your life. Do you love Jesus? Follow him. Conscript your life onto his word. 
Because God's the one at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's wild. Every command, every command in the New Testament and throughout Scripture is more aligned with who you truly are than any of that fleshly bristling that makes you want to disobey. Every command of Jesus aligns with the Christian heart even when we don't feel like it. And every command that we see in the Bible is fueled and grounded in the liberally dispensed grace of God. So you can trust him. You can follow him. You can be transformed by him today, right now. You can turn from your own way and look to the Jesus way. And you can do that right now. Scripture is really, really clear. It says, hey, if you hear the voice of God, don't harden your hearts. And being a Christian doesn't mean you leave this place and go, um, go clean up every single thing about your life and come back here and prove to all of us that you love Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You come to Jesus as you are, as a mess, as a disobedient person, as somebody who is against him, as someone who doesn't know him. You come to him as a mess, and then he changes you at the core of who you are, and the rest of your life is him lovingly um, shepherding you to be more and more and more like him, transforming you into the very image of Jesus. So don't go home and flush all your drugs down the toilet and then come in here and say you're ready to become a Christian. We love you. We're glad you're here. You can trust Jesus right now, right now. And for those of you who do trust Jesus, we're going to do what we always do. We get the opportunity at the end of this service to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. We, um, we take communion every single week at Redeemer Fellowship, and the way we do it is we break a piece of bread off and we dip it into a cup. The stoneware cups are wine and the glassware is juice. There'll be somebody down here to my right and to my left, someone in the center with a single-serve communion that's also gluten-free. And then we'll also have a station up in the balcony. We'll have prayer ministers as well who would love to pray for you for anything, for anybody in the room who will be underneath the stained glass window over to my left. In a minute, I'm going to uh, pray and thank God. But let me just say, if you believe, um, if Jesus is your only hope, if you are a Christian this morning, we invite you to participate in communion with us. And if you're not, I invite you to tell Jesus that. See what he says. So I'm going to pray for us and thank him. And the servers, you can, uh, the servers are going to come up and you all can come up whenever you're ready. So Jesus, just like on the night that you were betrayed, we're going to give thanks for your body and thanks for your blood. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for offering your body to be broken. Thank you that you demonstrated your love for the Father through your own obedience. Holy Spirit, would you fill us with faith as we eat? So that this would be a proclamation of the gospel in our hearts. This would be a proclamation of your goodness, your power, your strength. Fill us with faith. Fill us with hope. We look to you. We look to you for everything. For everything. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You all can come up whenever you're ready.